Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Gib Bullock. Gib, you're more than welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Great to be here. Thank you, Susan. Gib, you're out in uh, sunny, well, not so sunny, France at the moment, I believe. Today I am. I'm about an hour outside of Geneva, where I'm based, and in the mountains, which are, it's, it's ironically that probably the best snow that there's been in 15 years that I've been coming here, and the lifts are all shut, which actually... <laughs> ironically is understanding the, the the problems that means for obviously local business people and restaurants which very sympathetic to for me it's just for me and my dog it is absolutely wonderful to walk in this solitude yeah wow beautiful now i finished reading your book the entrepreneur confessions of a corporate insurgent which i would recommend to anyone listening to this and i'll say that probably several times throughout this podcast But in it, you say, I read somewhere that life sometimes presents a cubic centimetre of chance, which we have the option of ignoring or seizing. Outcome of such moments can be critical, sometimes even life changing. So there were plenty of moments for you (laughs) throughout this book, Gib. But perhaps let's start with the ones where you were asking, is this really all there is to life? Sure. I would attribute that quote of the cubic centimetre of chance to a very impressive man called Joseph Jaworski, who, amongst other things, wrote the book Synchronicity, which is well worth a a read. And that's where I heard it first, I think. But, you know, it's that it's that little kind of pinging. It's that whisper in the back of your your head that I'm sure everyone experiences from time to time. That is, you know, you see where the herd is going, you see where your life is going, and it's very obvious and maybe safe and and comfortable. And then this pinging, this whisper, this cubic centimetre of chance comes along and, and you either grasp it and seize it. And that's the brave move, I would say. And usually, it, 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 the, the, you know, your, your rational side of your brain is saying, don't do it. You know, what are people going to think? What about your career? How can you afford it? You're nuts. But the voice gets gets a bit louder and if you do seize it then in my experience and this goes with literature uh, such as you know Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and things like that that you you almost cross a threshold you step out into the unknown you take the leap of faith and then you are in an adventure of life you're in the unexpected and you get help and things happen and unfold in a way that you can't quite imagine so for me it was it was something so trivial I mean these things don't have to be 
big set piece events that we think are, are going to define our lives when we look back on our deathbed. It'll be the, 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 the birth of a child or getting married or death of a parent or all these big things. In my experience, it's been, it, it was a seemingly trivial everyday thing. In my case, it was reading a small article in a newspaper on a normal day uh, that was actually, I didn't realize at the time, going to have a profound uh, impact on, on my life. And it was talking about the need for business skills in the developing world. It was a charity called VSO who were looking for volunteers, business volunteers. They had enough doctors and nurses and teachers. They didn't have enough business people. And that coincided with me sitting there in my lovely yuppie lifestyle in London in the late 90s, having done very well in inverted commas for myself, wondering, is this all there is? Is there not more I could be doing for other people? Where do I fit in? And this thing presented itself. And there we go. And then you fasten your seatbelt and away it goes. So at the time you were working for Accenture, which I think is probably a brand most people are aware of. The time I was actually working for Anderson Consulting, which was oh. the old name for Accenture. And uh, yes. I, I went to the Balkans working for Anderson Consulting and came back to find it had floated in the stock exchange and changed to Accenture. Okay. Yep. But tell us what, what happened with that newspaper article. What did you bring about? What was the change? Well, again, it was very kind of emergent. I could have had no idea on that day reading an article that life would profoundly change for me and probably quite a few other people over the next 15 or so years. I put my hand up and, and suggested that Accenture maybe partner with this organization, which is what they were looking for. Most charities were queuing up looking for money from from businesses. VSO worked different. We said, we don't want your money. We want your people. We need your people. And I said, I want to go and do this. I went to the Balkans just after the Kosovo crisis. I was in what's now called Northern Macedonia, 90 something percent salary reduction, never more motivated in my life, you know, which is the first juxtaposition I suppose I experienced. I was loving what I was doing, working with small businesses, but acutely aware of the fact that me on my own as a volunteer feeling that I can pat myself on the back for doing a bit of good isn't going to change the world. And I was wondering the whole time, how could, how much more could I get done with my normal team? Why are companies like Accenture or the other big consultancies like Deloitte and PwC and others, why are they conspicuous by their absence in quote unquote, the developing world or emerging markets? And there's an obvious reason, <laughs> economics, they cost a fortune and these countries and organizations within them can't afford that. So the idea of changing the business model, we don't have to go into details, but actually could there be a business that could bring business and technology expertise from the likes of my colleagues and peers to parts of the world where there was a need, but least access. And, and most consultancies at the time were doing what they term pro bono, you know, give away, hand out, free of charge. Legal firms and consultancies tended to give this one-way gesture and I thought, well, that's not going to scale and it's not going to really be sustainable because it's always capped by the largesse and generosity of whichever boss uh, the company has. So if we could half salaries of people, if I was more motivated on an 80% reduction, maybe people would give up their salaries. Maybe Accenture would give up profit on doing this kind of work. Maybe 
Oxfam and Save the Children and UNICEF would perhaps pay something rather than expecting it for free if they could pay a pound for what normally might be valued at £10. And I did some calculations and put the vision not down into a spreadsheet, but just into a fake press article, I think, when I was coming back from Macedonia, a story. And, and storytelling is something we can maybe come back to, but I think if you want to get your idea across, storytelling is is so important. So it was a story about the future, set in the future, about Accenture launching a audacious non-profit business that was going to bring its people on half salary to the developing world, and it found its way to the chairman. And, and there you go. That was where it, I kind of landed at that point. I still didn't have any idea where things were going to go from there. I worked with Accenture Development Partners in an organization I worked with, we had consultants from ADP come and work with us. So I've, I know firsthand what, how motivated those people were as well. They worked bloody hard when they, when they worked with us. But you, you term what you've done, I suppose, and, and people that make change within an organization, the term entrepreneur. So I think most people have probably heard of entrepreneur, but I don't know if everybody has heard the term intrapreneur so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that absolutely and i i would just say up front susan that i i did not term myself that and i think it certainly isn't a job description or a, or a role you apply for or you you check in on linkedin it's i think it's more a mindset more a behavior and and i had no i i'd never heard of of that i went off doing my my, my thing as i've described challenging i suppose received wisdom in business received wisdom at the time was companies make as much money as possible as much profit people you get good people you pay them more and they work harder and this was flying in the face of that you know we were going to half people's salary and yet they worked super hard it attracted so many people more than fifty thousand people in accenture are on the waiting list at the moment today years on it's a huge show me another company that has People queuing up to half their salary, it challenges these taboos, these, these the paradigm of how business is meant to operate. And companies are meant to, they don't do non-profit and charities aren't, are meant to receive money. So we were challenging. And it was only a few years into doing this and it working against the odds that uh, a good friend now, a person I'd never met before called Maggie Dupre, came along about 2007, 2008. And we'd been going for about five years then and said, I'm doing a study on entrepreneurship. And I said, what's that? Which is a question you've asked me. I've heard of entrepreneurship. And she said, "It's well, it's kind of people who are behaving in an entrepreneurial way or social entrepreneurial way, somebody with a purpose-driven idea or business, who instead of leaving the organization and doing a startup, which is the sexy thing to do and the obvious thing to do, they make a conscious decision to stay. And I sometimes use the analogy of, of a super tanker, the, the size and scale of business, uh, even in my career, has has grown beyond anyone's imagination. We have created super tankers, like it or lump it. And it's the notion that is it potentially more impactful to change a super tanker one degree in a different direction than create little speedboats? We can we can go off and do the little speedboats. That's not even easy. Startups, be entrepreneurial. Being entrepreneurial is a different challenge to try and and shift the super tanker, to try and, yeah, to to, to fight from within, to change from within. So that's what a, a social intrapreneur is. The French amongst you, your listeners will be probably 
squirming at the, uh, the term, the abuse of their language, but it, it, it wasn't me that made it up. Yeah, no, fair enough. And I, and I, I did realise that as I asked the question. But I mean, it's a really interesting analogy, the super tanker and the speedboat. And actually, I spoke to somebody who works with Pukka Herbs a few weeks ago, and he was saying that at Pukka, they've been bought out by Unilever. And at Pukka, they're known as a speedboat. There you go. Or, or, sorry, Unilever sees them as a speedboat and doesn't want to slow down that kind of entrepreneurial, maybe intrapreneurial even vision within within the organization maybe i'd shift it then in terms of it might be a speedboat but it, it, it maybe it's the tug as well i mean yes. i think you know the tugboat with a line attached to the, the tanker unilever is a, a bit of an exception because uh, and i don't have shares in them and i don't have any relations in there but they are doing great things and yeah. they've got great leadership paul pullman in the past alan jope now but they are obviously getting these speedboats, tugboats to pull the organization, I think, into a different way. And that's great if you can create a culture where the speedboats or the tugboats are encouraged and empowered rather than people going off in a more, it's more a lifeboat, frankly, we need these days. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but business is now uh, profit above everything else i mean there is a shift there's no doubt about it since i joined the workforce there is there is definitely a shift and and people coming after us are demanding it i hate to think that we're in the older generation now but we are but at the core there is still a leadership problem there absolutely is and i've often felt that that in many companies, at the top of many companies, I, I mentioned Unilever, some, one of the exceptions that kind of proves the rule, but there is still, to this day, this view of, of on one hand, we have our core business and what we do, which is numbers and profit and short-term maximization of profit. And that's what people have been programmed in, in business schools. And, and no one's going to sack you for doing that. And then on the other hand, there's this view we do good over here. So the right hand is doing business and the left hand is doing good. And they see these things as either ors. And they have to converge. They are converging. And it's a false dichotomy to think that it's doing business or doing good. The old kind of business versus CSR or philanthropy where a group of people hanging off the side do the, the good for the, the rest of the business. And yes, leadership is lacking. And the, the notion turning back to the the entrepreneurship conversation is that, to my mind, leadership can happen at all levels in the organization. It is not associated with a fancy job title or a SVP or a C at the beginning of your title. I see leadership coming in in all sorts of different um, guises. And in some ways, the propensity to drive change in this way and the affinity towards this purpose agenda the climate agenda, whatever you want to call it, is in some ways inversely proportionate to the level of seniority in the firm. And I'm probably, can I say pissing off? Um, yes, you can. You, <laughs> you want, um, pissing off the the senior people by, say, by saying that because there are some, some great folks. But frankly, this wasn't taught in business schools in the, in the, in the 80s and 90s when these people, people that have got to the top in what I see as a fundamentally broken and and unsustainable system are unlikely to be the ones to turn around and, 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 and change it. Therefore, 
we'll probably will need some top down enablement, but the surge from bottom up, the surge from entrepreneurs that can wake up to the potential of, of business and the opportunity that there is. I'm not saying, oh, we just have to make less profit and, 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 and do more good in the world. I'm saying by doing good in the world, by addressing the sustainable development goals, these 17 goals and goodness knows 300 and something indicators that there are, they are mouthwatering opportunities for business in disguise. They're simply talking about how we find ways of feeding and nourishing the next billion that are coming on the planet and they are coming and how we provide them with access to quality education, clean energy, healthcare, sanitation. That's the goals, right? And if we can rethink business models, if we can innovate around how we collaborate and how technology will play a role in all of this, then it is a prize for business. And some reports, the UN Business Commission estimated that to be about 12 or 13 trillion dollars if business can engage in achieving the SDGs by 2030. So it's it's an opportunity that business is at the moment not maximizing. Wow. That's like or leaving money on the table, basically, which is yeah. Yeah. It should be a driver. And 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 the and the point is that I'm not saying that next quarter if, if you if you have to get these results next quarter because you're own incentive mechanisms or your board or Wall Street high frequency traders are pushing you that way. No, I don't think it will be next quarter. But if you take a five, 10 year horizon, the value is is there for sure. So it's the short termism we need to tackle in business, not to say stop being businesses and stop making uh, any money at all. I'm not saying that. Absolutely. And and I, I totally agree. It's having a long term view of the world rather than the short term view of your numbers. And you say as well that your North Star ambition, and I've, it's something you're already doing anyway, but is to fundamentally challenge the role that business currently plays in society and to seek to harness that transformative power to tackle the global challenges facing humanity, which I suppose the SDGs but it's it's more than that, isn't it? It's it's also allowing people dignity at work. Dignity at work, absolutely, and 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 you can see by the the the, the indicators around low levels of engagement. Is it around about the twenty percent of people are engaged? As in, four out of five people are unengaged, disengaged, not enjoying what they're doing. The levels of burnout, mental health issues, anxiety issues. Businesses are are fairly unhappy places to be at the moment. People, young people with, you know, bright people who have done everything right. They've got good education that they've paid through their noses for. They've worked hard. They've got into these elite organizations and just saying, is this it? You know, is this what I want to do? They look 30 years ahead, 40 years ahead to the bosses and say, do, is that what I want to be? There's not that many role models, I don't think. And so there is a fundamental challenge, uh, identity crisis that business is, is, is playing at the moment. The response seems to be, oh, we'll, <laughs> we'll make our happier places. Google will create these playgrounds in their, in their uh, campuses. We'll have bar football in the canteens. We'll put fruit in the desk and gym memberships and think that's going to make you happier. No, I think until business at the highest levels, at all levels, frankly, 
takes a long, hard look in the mirror and says, what are we here for? What could we do to make the world a better place? Why do we exist? What, why is it we're making these, these widgets that we make? And how is it we're going to, to make them? Until they do that, then I think we are constantly going to be having these, these symptoms that I've mentioned of, of people who are unha unhappy. And I think that unhappiness and these symptoms are frankly perfectly normal responses by perfectly normal, healthy human beings to a system that's gone crazy. Yeah. Which is a bit uh, of the book, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think you talk about, what is it? Uh, you call it the corporate antibodies. The corporate which, immune system. Or yeah. corporate immune system, sorry. Yeah, which is a fabulous phrase. So maybe elaborate a little bit more on that. Again, it, it relates very much to, well, <laughs> my experience as being an entrepreneur, because I've, I've probably so far in this conversation talked about all the, the upsides and, and maybe given people the impression that this was all plain sailing and fantastic. You find your purpose. You don't leave the company. You stay put and try and change the company you're in. You launch your speedboat, your lifeboat. And um, everyone's going to applaud you. The leadership are going to promote you. And the business is going to love what you're doing. My experience was that that happened for a while. I got lots of good leadership support. Against the odds, we scaled in our first 10 years, this guerrilla movement, as I sometimes call it, call us, worked in 90 odd, 80 or 90 countries around the world. We were working with all the biggest charities that you've heard of and we thousands of Accenture staff working on half salary, more motivated than ever, ever been. And, and we probably provided a quarter of a billion worth of services. And I, I took the point that I don't think I could have done that, starting that up as a as a little me and a few friends trying to create a for-purpose consulting business. I think staying in the business allowed us to scale more rapidly. But, and there is the but, this corporate immune system that I talk about is, I think, not unique to Accenture at all. I think it, it probably exists in, in many companies from what I hear, and it is the in, invisible forces of... Middle, middle management doing their job, enforcing the rules, enforcing policy, the performance management processes that are fit for rewarding past behaviours rather than incentivizing new kind of behaviours that are needed, risk management, culture, you name it. And, and when you are the lightning rod for these, you are the entrepreneur, you get a lot of the credit when things go well and the, I got plenty of nice plaudits and, and some promotions and some money and uh, I was just the happiest person I had the best job for many years but then when things don't go so well the buck stops with you and I found it harder and more difficult I didn't realize just the hours that I was working um, furious hours because I was so committed to the cause and this was my our baby it was a t i was leading a team and, and a brilliant team of people it wasn't a one-man band i had a brilliant team of people but we were really finding it harder and harder to to break beyond this 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 immune system and eventually i was the one that broke i guess which is maybe where you're alluding to well exactly and you talk about was it a mental breakdown or a mental breakthrough and so I don't know where you've landed with that one, Gabe, but you call it the incident. 
the nurse calls it a bit of a wobble or a little wobble. But you basically found yourself being admitted to a psychiatric unit in Glasgow Hospital one day. I did. Absolutely. And, you know, I frankly was the last person that I thought, and I, I think many of my family and, and, and peers and colleagues would have probably thought that I wasn't at risk of this happening. I was happy. I enjoyed my job. I didn't have, thankfully, a history of this in my family or personally, and, and, and thankfully I haven't had since. And there I was, you know, um, checking in as if I was checking into the normal hotel that I was going into every every week in some different country. There I was checking into uh, a psychiatric hospital. And and that, again, was, we can come to the reasons for, for writing the book in a second, but it was it was this unexpected nature of this and finding myself in this unexpected place. I, there are some things I go into in the book that leading up to this that were, I'd come from India, I'd got a fever, maybe that had triggered it. I'd been doing a workshop where I'd done yoga and, and other, other sort of mindfulness activities beforehand. Was that a catalyst? I, I don't know. And frankly, I will never know. De facto, it's become more of a breakthrough for me than a breakdown. And there is something in there around sometimes crises, things, bad things that happen to us, things we don't want to happen to us can sometimes be catalysts for change and for good things from them. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It was the Chinese symbols, you know, for um, um, crises is danger and opportunity are these two symbols together. And so I will never know. I can't go back in time. I don't think we can yet. Who knows in the future? But, um, but does it matter? Factors. The, re- the result is it doesn't matter. Uh, you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter. But what I did think is that when you can't choose what happens to you, I didn't I wouldn't, didn't ask for it. I didn't want it. I didn't expect it. But these things happen to you. I think what's more important is how you react to what happens to you. And I for a period of time, went off and took a bit of a leave of absence. I was writing, not thinking it was a book. I was just writing for cathartic reasons. And then I felt I was lying by omission to a certain extent by going out publicly and saying I had had a health issue or I was leaving the company. And as I did subsequently a year or so later, I felt I had to stand up and be counted. And whatever it was that caused it, I had been in a psychiatric ward. I was the one one of the one in four that evidently will have a mental health issue. And if I couldn't speak up about it at my stage in my career, when I didn't really care about a career, early 50s now, I was late 40s at the time, I think, then then who could? And, and, and this taboo subject of mental health in the workplace would stay a taboo subject. So one of the main drivers of the book was to, to stand up, be counted about mental health. But very quickly in the book, I, I'm, I'm very much trying to shift the debate from the mental health of individuals and that's our focus how do we deal with these individuals to saying frankly we need to look at the mental health of the organization the mental health of the system which is causing these problems and it's so true and i think we're going to see such an escalation now as well with so many people working from home and not having that differentiator between going to work and coming home from work or whatever it might be. And even though working from home can be great and productive, it's also probably slowly killing people or giving them 
serious mental health issues. Yep, it, it absolutely is, and I and I see many people suffering, and I'm very sympathetic to them. I I don't have kids, but my goodness, I'm hearing on the radio and from other friends that the homeschooling that's going on at the moment. It's not only are you trying to do your day job, but you might have one, two, three, four kids of different ages that need to be homeschooled. How hard must that be? And then, as you say, the boundaries. And I, I allowed my boundaries to be broken. There was a very, very, very thin um, film between the work life and the, the home life. My passion, my whole being was invested. My identity, frankly, was built up around being the executive director of Accenture Development Partnerships. That was who I, I was. And I've spent the last few years trying to unpick who I am when I am not that business card. Who and, and I think many people in business of all levels get subsumed by the job, the day job, doing, 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 doing. And they have no chance to, to be. <laughs> we are human beings after all. We're not human doings, as someone said. Mm-hmm. And, and I see senior people in particular as well when they've been 30, 40 years in a job. That's them, you know, that's the whole thing, getting on a plane, doing this thing, earning money. Um, and it's hard. It's, it's, we become institutionalized. And now the institutions have been closed. So we're at home. Like the prisoner that's been in life imprisonment uh, gets allowed home and they don't know what to do with themselves and they don't know how to behave. Yeah, the and Stockholm Syndrome. It's, well, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the whole, yeah, being not doing and it's something that I'm very mindful of myself and and made shifts in my own life to be a lot more of the being and less of the doing and the identity question is very interesting because the other thing I think that comes through for me reading your book is you've got a great sense of place Scotland the Isle of Butte seems to be very very close to your heart and in everything you do it, it certainly is. I grew up in a small town called Rothsey on the Isle of Bute, which is it's one of the easily accessible islands in, in Scotland, just west of Glasgow. And, you know, I was born into a, a family of teachers and mother and father were both teachers, father art, mother English and sisters now a teacher. So I was the, the person that went off. And like most people from this island that went to find an education and get drawn down to the big world of business and the bright lights and all these things that were going to make us successful and happy. And, and while the mortgage and the, the rent and the location of living has changed a number of times over these years, my heart has probably never left the, the island. And when I would go back there, as I often did when we used to be able to travel, I, um, I always just felt so grounded in this space. It's a very special space, very special energy. And I only... I'm really only able to to sort of name that 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 now I realize it more now than than ever, having traveled around all the world doing doing my thing and being so busy doing that now I'm trying to get better at the being and being on mute and yeah. having time to talk to that stranger that you might meet on a plane or on a train or when when we can do that again oh, i I feel very bad about that. For those that haven't read the book, it's, uh, I mean, it's true, and, and I'm probably still pretty bad at it. I, I was on, I would open my laptop on these flights, and I had to get, you know, the flight, great, I've got an hour and a half, or if it's going to the US, seven hours of time, and I won't be disturbed by phone calls. And I, the last thing I want to do is speak to the person next to me, or, 
and you miss I'm not just suggesting speak to strangers but I'm, I'm thinking just more well to speak to people but also to do nothing there's a Japanese term that I love and it's it came from the art I went on an art course as, as in my new life I'm trying to singing art gospel music you name it I'm trying to do these things and in art in Japanese art they have this concept of ma emi and there's a symbol for it which is intentional space the space between the notes and to make music the spaces and the gaps between the notes are just as important as the in fact maybe more important than the the notes themselves and it just makes me reflect on my busy business life where i felt to be successful and was to cram your diary so full with no gaps and to not speak to the stranger on the flight to to be doing 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 and i'm trying uh, a work in progress to get better at filling some my time and my time isn't oh well i'm going to take an hour to do something that is going to lead me towards and i'm going to measure myself and strava and no do nothing absolutely nothing or meditate which is really hard for people i think it, it's not something you can just do it takes practice and you have to kind of be patient with yourself to allow yourself the space to do nothing and I even banned the word busy from my vocabulary. I do not allow myself to tell anyone that I am too busy uh, or myself, because it's just one of those words that you kind of hang your identity around as well, I think. Yes. Busyness. Business is very much about busyness. And I still get triggered by, you know, I can be out here in the mountains where I'm spending more time and if I'm three o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday looking at snow on a branch of a tree, there's a voice in my head still saying, you should be on a conference call. You should be being productive, um, achieving. And it, it goes very, very deep. And so I'm, I'm not for a minute saying I've cracked the code on this, but I know that I'm better than I was and I know I need to get better than I am. Which is great. I mean, that's what life is about. Improvement, I think. So back to Butte and Craig Buroch. I think I've Buroch. Tell us is about it, you see the way my video of people are watching this in video, my No, we'll we'll just be audio. Well, yeah. Okay. As someone said to me, you've got you've got the face for, for radio. But my 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 face for radio is, is lighting up when you ask about Craig Buroch. And and it's interesting that there is B in the in the name of Craig Biroch, given the conversation we've just been having. And whether that's coincidence or not depends on how you view the world, I guess. But it, it, it's a Gaelic term for, for jagged rock. It's the name of a, a farm that when I was a kid going to school, it was a working farm, a few fields away from the house where I grew up. It's now a derelict farm. And um, I'll spare you all the, 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 the details, but the long story short is I... <laughs> had a idea well the, the idea was came before the farm the idea was i am very much committed to this role of changing or, or doing whatever i can to try and change this role of business this belief that business can change the world has the power to change the world if we can change business it's you know so we need to change business but the realization of the last few years since writing the book is that that changing business probably starts with changing ourselves. 
And that's what I've been kind of working on, this work of progress that I've mentioned. And if we can do that, then we've got a chance. So the the sort of big North Star vision of changing business and the local roots of, of Butte somehow came together in, an, in a nice way. And I decided, well, maybe if I can find a space, then I can bring dormant change makers from business, these entrepreneurs that don't know they're entrepreneurs yet, and create fertile soil for for these people and their ideas to to flourish and i bought this farm and 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 i'm trying to create a business decelerator so the, don't worry too much about deceleration it's it's really just a it's just like most things that i am approaching in business now it's it's just trying to say maybe the answer is counterintuitive when we are going faster and bigger and more profitable and incubators and accelerators, what about just actually slowing down? And that might be the, the best way to change and, and, and give people the space to be innovative. We're not going to dream up the new business models to tackle climate change, the new business models to feed and nourish the next billion, as I talked about, in the 72nd hour of our working week. We just won't. So we need to find a way somehow of taking people off that hamster wheel for a period of time. The pandemic has obviously slowed the hamster wheel and we have seen business do some amazing things as a result. I mean, who would think that perfume manufacturers would make hand sanitizer and car manufacturers make ventilator? We can see what happens when that drumbeat of commercial short-term profitability is is slackened for a period of time or, or, or allowed, and people are allowed to be innovative and creative. These things didn't happen in the boardroom. These people, these ideas came, I'm sure, from the grassroots. And I want to connect people to nature, to music, to art, and, and create this environment that's going to be conducive to, to good people being at their best every day and to well-being uh, and social innovation. So that that is Craig Beer, the business decelerator and yeah i've had so much great help from amazing people that i've been meeting over the last few years of just suddenly it almost feels that they're bringing a piece of the jigsaw puzzle to this bizarre undertaking someone's still coming up to come along with a jigsaw puzzle piece that has got several million pounds written on it but i'm, I'm sure somebody has that these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle but we've got a lot of the other pieces well, if there's anyone listening do get in touch with gabe if you've got <laughs> Absolutely, you know, I'm sure Oprah Winfrey or uh, Bill Gates or one of these people will be listening to your podcast. You never know. Who knows? That's the beauty of the world. You just never know who's listening. Who knows? Yeah, I'll take a five. I'll take a fiver from end at the moment. We have a trust, but no, it's it's not about the money. It really isn't about the money. It is emerging, and it's something again. It's it's back to this cubic centimeter of chance. This is not something that came in a kind of rational. Oh, what am I going to do with the next bit of my career? It it was another one of these opportunities. It's ridiculous. I'm having plenty of people <laughs> can tell me how I should not be investing my time or money in trying to renovate a pile of bricks on a Scottish island. It's counterintuitive, but every cell in my body is telling me that this is what I need to be doing. And so I'm following that instinct and they may have the last laugh or... Um, you never know, it might just work. Exactly. And you you finish your book with a quote from Rollo May. 
the opposite of courage in our society is not cowardice, it is conformity. And I find that a fabulous quote. And I must say that when I got to the end of your book, there's two books I've read that I've cried reading. And I came very close reading the last chapter, Eat, Pray, Love in a Business Suit. You didn't cry. I didn't cry, but I came so close because... I well, we didn't get to talk, talk about Garmt van Soest, the the, mm. the the guy with ALS, but that and also, you say whatever is causing you to hesitate, hold back, or procrastinate in crossing the elusive threshold and beginning your own hero's journey, is it scarier than death? And I nearly shot up out of my seat. Because it, it was quite, it's quite profound. Yeah, and I got Garmt, I think in Dutch, he would say Van Zoest, who was a fellow colleague in Accenture. I didn't really know him before he came on a course I was running, and he was at the very st- early stages of his diagnosis of ALS. I got to know him very well over a four-year period, and he's the bravest guy, really the bravest guy. He put up with so much. He was quickly in a wheelchair, quickly unable to speak. It's the worst. I mean, it really, I can think of very, very few worse sentences than motor neuron disease at ALS. And yet he, he typed, he wrote two books using just his eyeballs. He, he uh, created a venture fund to accelerate cures into ALS. He did so many things. And then one day, in one of my fairly regular visits to Utrecht, he said, you know, I'm, I'm, um, calling it a day. I've, I've, I'm, I'm ready to go. And in Holland, you can euthanasia is, is allowed. And he had very bravely looked death in the eye and, and, and said, I'm not afraid of you. And he took the courage to set an appointment with a doctor to step out. And he's certainly done a lot to help me address my, my, we all have a bit of a fear of death. And I don't think I'm the bravest guy around that, that if somebody comes and points a gun at my head, I won't be scared. But uh, conquering that fear of death, I think, is 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 giving yourself the will and the right to live. And I think there's, you know, it's a freedom. I think it's the ultimate challenge. And he did so much. And he was the ultimate entrepreneur. He was working within Accenture, using the power of the company, its clients, other people to raise money, to do innovations. So I, I felt dedicate the book to this guy. And I had the privilege in his last couple of weeks he asked me what what gift I wanted to to have to say goodbye to him, and I and I wrote that for him and read it out to him as he closed his eyes and sat back in his wheelchair. Um, and um, it was very moving. Very, thank you for sharing that, Gib. So, Gib, it's been the time has flown by, which I expected. But if people want to connect with you, how can they do that? Probably um, LinkedIn is the, the easiest way. I have a, a website, gibbulloch.com, funnily enough, and, you know, very creatively thought up. I write a, a, a monthly blog, which is called The Blog, which is a kind of <laughs> bullock and blog equals blog. And that's just a sort of slightly alternative take on business and purpose-driven business and things. So you can sign up for that if they would like it. But I would be happy to hear from, from anybody that this resonates uh, with. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your open openness and honesty and also for, for putting it in a book. 
I think it was very brave. Thank you. Thank you for reading it. And thank you for giving me the platform to to share these thoughts. It's been great, Susan, and, I, and I'm very delighted. You can tell when someone has, I've done a few podcasts and, and the difference between someone who has read the book and someone who hasn't is tangible. Thank you. Good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.